are listening to the Fuerte Network. Hello, everyone. Uh, buenas tardes. Welcome to We Are Home, an immigration podcast. Uh, my name is Carlos Navarro. I'm here with my co-host, Danny. Today, we have a really special episode. We're here with Professora Eileen Diaz-McConnell talking about border militarization, and that'll be on a little later. But before we get started on today's topic, we have some pretty exciting news. Danny and I are actually going to D.C. for the Senate vote on the Build Back Better plan. It's going to be really exciting. I've actually never been to D.C. myself. I'm going to rely heavily on Carlos to show me around and make sure that I don't get lost in the hallways and anything. But no, one of the things that we definitely want to do is try to see if we can get a conversation with these people that are making the decisions on our lives. Uh, I don't think it's a lot to ask for. You give me five minutes of your time because you're yeah. kind of planning out the rest of my life. So fair trade. No, I definitely think they, they forget that there's people. Uh, behind their bills, uh, they see a bunch of numbers of oh, 600,000, 11 million. But I think when they actually meet people and they see people that are affected, they go, oh, crap, like my decisions have actual effects. And to me, that's crazy. Like, how are you not thinking about the people behind your bills? Exactly. And going into just uh, being a public servant in the beginning, because no one starts at the top. Well, I mean, very few do start at the top. Yeah. But uh, going in, you have to get public support. So you already hear stories. You already know what's going on in communities. And I think as people move up more and more, they start to forget about those those people that got them in the door in the first place, got them on that ladder that they're starting to climb. And now they're on top. You know, they can't stop listening to us. And it shouldn't be us having to go across the country, but it's come down to that. So that's what we're going to do. Yeah, we're basically going to go bother them. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Definitely looking forward to that and, and getting getting all that information out to, out to everybody. And want to remind everybody also, if you guys have any other questions, any topics that you want us to cover, you want us to go, you know, deep into to get a better understanding, make sure you let us know. Uh, follow Fuerte on Instagram and Facebook. You can message us there. You can find all of our information, our emails, our numbers there where you can give us your feedback, your topics that yeah. you guys want to uh, know about. And of course, as always, subscribe to the podcast, like, share, comment, tell your friends about it. And it really helps us grow when you leave that review on Apple, iTunes and wherever else you listen to your podcast. Yeah, I definitely think we we are an immigration podcast. And I think that's pretty vague because there's just so much under immigration that we could talk about. The Build Back Petter plan, it has its immigration provisions. People want to know what's happening with all of that. But there's also other things going on at the border. In, in the interior, there's everything going on with asylum, with TPS, with DACA recipients, with deferred and forced departure. So there's just a lot of immigration topics. Exactly. So as most people are starting to wind down the year, starting to take it easy and, you know, get into December, we're just getting warmed up. We're revving up yeah. and we're going to have a very, very big December. So let's go ahead and start, Carlos. Uh, we had this uh, conversation that we had with Profesora Eileen Diaz-McConnell. I absolutely love this conversation. I, I, I love her point of view and everything and her way of explaining everything. So I actually had her in my undergrad classes in 2019. And I think she she catapulted me into kind of learning more academically and how migration works and how migration is structured and the history of everything that led up to this point. Because it's, it's pretty interesting. I think a lot of People say, oh, this isn't who the United States is when they see something mm -hmm. bad go with migration. But it kind of is it, who the really United is. States is. <laughs> I think. Oh, so, so then we have her to thank to have you here today then. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> All right. So big thank you to Professora McConnell for that. 
Yeah, no, definitely. And I think when we look at the historical side, our interview with her really made me think about kind of the beginnings of the country and where a lot of the xenophobia started. I don't know if a lot of people have heard about the Chinese exclusion cases, but it's essentially like the U.S. banned immigration from China. And there was a lot of xenophobia with that. A lot of the things we're seeing right now mm -hmm. towards Latino migrants, towards Haitian migrants, a lot of the sentiments really old. Uh, right. like this has been cyclical. So I think a lot of the stuff that she said uh, and a lot of the, the ways that she explained it were really good because this topic is just so complex that you could talk about it for hours. And we almost did. And we and I and I could. <laughs> Alright, so let's go ahead and play that interview that we had with her. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, so hi everyone. Uh, we are here with Professora Eileen Diaz McConnell, a professor of transborder studies at Arizona State University. Professora, I'm really happy you're on with us today. Uh, I actually took Professora McConnell's class in I believe it was 2019. Super informative, and she's very knowledgeable and an expert in the field of border policy and militarization. So, Professora, thank you for, for being on the show with us. I'm really happy to, to be here. It's really a pleasure. Um, I'm, ha I'm always happy to support Carlos and all of his endeavors. He's got a lot of enthusiasm. <laughs> One of the realities of a pandemic is that we work at home a lot, as you all know. And so I'm, I yeah. apologize if you hear a, a dog every once in a while. Um, but yeah, I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, no worries. Um, before we start, would you be able to give us a little background into uh, what areas you focus on, what you teach, and your areas of expertise? Sure. So I'm a sociologist and a demographer. I've been at Arizona State since 2006. I, my research is right now is about resilience and the assets that immigrant families and mixed status families possess. Um, lately, I've been doing work related to that in a family setting. And then also right now I'm working on a project about COVID-19 and Latinx adults and communities and the concerns that they have about COVID, fears of deportation during and after the Trump administration, psychosocial stress and well-being. That's some of the things I'm working on right now. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, and I know you also, in previous areas of research, you did focus on uh, border uh, militarization, correct? Yeah, well, it's not an area of, that I directly collect data about, but mm -hmm. that it has a really large impact on life on both sides of the border. And so, yeah, that's something that I've always talked a lot about in my classes, specifically. Uh, Professora, for those of us that don't know, what is militarization when it comes to the border? So, uh, okay, so first let's say, right, that the border, you know, has in encompasses thousands of miles, that it is really different between, right, from California to Arizona through Texas, right, that there's a lot of shifts. It's, there's not just one border, right, that there, it's thousands of miles. It includes, right, protected areas. There's ecological impacts. There's tourism that's happening. There is trucks and rail cars and products going back and forth. And so it is a, it is a, uh, the, the border is a site of a lot of different processes that are happening at once. The militarization of the border, I would just say in general, immigration, immigration activity enforce, and immigration enforcement activity has become increasingly militarized. Uh, that's not new. So it's not just about the physical border, but just in general, the, the approaches to immigration. 
um, are increasingly militarized. So when we talk about like the militarization of the border, what we're talking about is basically, and it's been happening since the 1980s and earlier than that, but it really kind of heightened in the 1990s and beyond with a focus on trying to uh, control the border as much as possible with more um, military equipment, with more personnel, a lot more people, a lot of like these days it involves, you know, heat sensing and very sophisticated technology to keep an eye on what's happening on the border, a tremendous amount of equipment, the move from, so, you know, people, and you've seen those movies or, and you've probably heard stories about how people say like the border between Mexico and the United States was a line in the sand and that that's what it used to be like. And what's been happening since the 1980s has been an increasing in border fencing in like increasing walls, more walls more fencing, stadium lighting, depending on where you are. Uh, and it's not just at the border area, right? We know that the border has been pushed into the United States farther, right? With, with, with uh, when you cross like, for example, into Puerto Penasco, right? Uh, you're in a desert and you're getting stopped and you're getting asked questions and all of that is part of the militarization of the border. I think one part that you said about the border being a line in the sand, I hear a lot of stories from from parents and even my own parents where this is the border used to be very different. They used to be able to cross freely. How have you seen the, the border change in the last 15, 20 years or since the 1980s? I know that a lot of people haven't really grown up in a world without a border wall or without all this motorization. So how has it changed? What did it used to look like? Well, I mean, I think that that's true, that it used to be, it didn't have all the attention and the focus, like I said, the stadium lighting, right, triple fencing in some places. So it wasn't like that, I think, and it, but it really started to accelerate in the 1990s. So it hasn't even been in just the last 10 or 15 years, right? This is a process that's been going on for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I think that that leads to for communities is right people would be able to cross back and forth and there and and that has become increasingly more difficult surveillance right there's filming going on there's so many different i mean if you just show up anywhere because i've done this if you just show up anywhere near a fence like you could be uh like if you go around you know in, in southern arizona if you if you stop your car and you get out you very soon you will be approached by uh border patrol there will be because they are they are paying attention to every mile um, and so that wasn't something that was the case, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. And I think it's really too intensified, not just as a result of immigration policies that call for more militarization of the border, but as you know, you all have lived this with 9-11, 9-11 really, you know, turned things around in terms of thinking about everything in terms of homeland security and national security. And that together with a bunch of other processes have just made the border space much more surveilled, you know, much more a site of enforcement and a focus on security rather than integration and, you know, focus on separation. I heard you talk in a, in a previous podcast episode where you're talking about, you know, Governor Brewer, the pre a previous Arizona governor, and, yeah. you know, she did a lot. You all remember the things, yeah. you know, things that she said that would talk about that would really encourage kind of a here versus there mentality that that is across the border is a site of you know crime and death and drugs no understanding that there are communities that live there and people who live there and, and connections across borders mm -hmm. that's been something that's been going on for a long time so um for officers to come over like you said if we were to stop and get out of the car for them to go over there 
obviously they're going to check out to see if we're doing anything wrong. If we're trying to cross over anybody or anything and things like that, they're going to want to come over and check it out. But is there anything actually illegal about just going up and say, take a picture or have a photo shoot next to the wall or shoot a video or something like that? As long as you're not, you know, crossing over, is there anything actually illegal about that? You know what? I have to tell you because this is a podcast and I don't know who's going to listen. I'm not an attorney. So I don't actually know whether what is, and I'm sure that there, Carlos probably knows, right? About <laughs> what, what activities are legal and which activities are not illegal. What do you know about that, Carlos? I know that going up to it physically, there's nothing illegal about that. I think mm -hmm. the motorization and the enforcement has gotten so pronounced that it's just an inevitability that you're going to be asked questions. Uh, just because I think people are so weird about you going to the border and being around that space. So I think the enforcement is what makes people ask questions. But I don't believe there's anything illegal about it. But I know like in the past, things such as leaving water or leaving food, that's become criminalized. Right. So we could go over there and just trigger them. Let's go start taking pictures, have them mobilize. And <laughs> Well, and if you, I mean, as, as, as Carlos is saying, right, if you leave water or if you leave food, right, then I think you can get in trouble. And I think that's what some immigration and what immigrant um, activists have gotten in trouble for, right, is, is leaving that because I think that that's considered to be something related to leaving trash behind and, and littering, that kind of thing. So yeah, I, I know that they don't like it if you have, <laughs> if you're filming around them. And I think, you know, one of the things that we haven't mentioned yet, right, is that they're I mean, in my opinion, there's racial profiling going on. Um, yeah, you know, I think it really depends on who's asking and they're checking to, you know, they care about the gender of the person and the age and, and, and what they look like and what, you know, what they're doing. I think we can't argue that that doesn't make a difference. What, what your car you're driving, how many people are in the car, what do they look like? All of those are things that make a difference, right? I know as enforcement has increased at the border, have you seen that be coupled with a change in how U.S. strategy inside of the country has changed. I know in previous discussions, uh, we've talked about how the, the U.S. kind of moved towards attrition, correct? So I know, um, how, how do you think that uh, the U.S. strategy for deportations has changed over time, along with increased enforcement? One of the things that we know has happened is that there's been increasing criminalization and integration of the immigration system and the criminal justice system. At the same time, that there has been this militarization of the border, often a treatment of, you know, people have a right to migrate and to seek asylum, for example, that is not outside the law. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not outside the law to, to seek asylum, for example. And so, uh, and, and human movement is also normal. You know, the I, people move as a result of climate change, as a result of employment opportunities, as a result yeah. of political insecurity, a result of US intervention, you know, the development of multinational corporations. I mean, human movement is something that's normal. And I feel like we have made that uh, and in addition, let's also say, you know, part of the reason why migration looks the way that it does is because of recruitment from the United States and policies of the United States that have encouraged Mexican migrant men, right, during the Bracero program, for example, to support the U.S. economy, right, and capitalism. And so those are all kind of normal. When I say normal, what I... I mean, human migration is normal and that that is something that's going to that is going to happen and happens around the world. And I think that the approach of U.S. immigration policy and immigration enforcement activities, coupled with the recent you know, xenophobic rhetoric from 
President Trump and the Trump administration, you know, these are doing things that that are treating what should be considered to be kind of normal migrations or migrations that just happen. They've been really catastrophized and made, you know, is this like we've never seen, you know, it's a surge that we've never seen before. And and I think that all of that is not helpful for addressing uh, the reality. I mean, the United States, right, has a long history of migration, but I think we tend to treat it like something that like is abnormal or strange. That said, you know, we know that there are reasons for why migrants, for example, are coming from Mexico or other, you know, coming from, from the Northern Triangle or countries in Central America. And there are reasons for that that are logical for why people would want to leave situations and, and come to the United States. And, and beyond those kind of push factors, there's pull factors. You know, the United States already has a lot of immigrants that who've been separated from their families for many decades or generations. And that reunification is something that U.S. immigration policy has supported. So I know I, I went into a lot of different topics, but I think that when we talk about migration, we have to include all these different threads, which make it complicated and nuanced and, and make it hard to talk about because people want like a, you know, multiple choice kind of answer. And it's an essay answer. Yeah, I know it's a very multifaceted question. And I think for a lot of us, and what you said is super, super important for a lot of us, we can't really imagine a world with without borders or without the U.S.-Mexico border. So it's hard for us to uh, visualize what it used to look like. Uh, I know migration migration has been happening for thousands of years and there's migration patterns in place. People move. So the fact that it's treated as something that's that's odd or or weird to me is is kind of confusing because the thing that's weird to me is the fact that there's an impassable line where you know, it's a line that we made up. Yeah. And, and I think the other, I mean, you know, I think it's really important when we think about, you know, like we were talking about earlier about whether it's illegal to stand in front of a, in, in front of a, a fence or to film or to record, right? Governments decide what's legal or illegal. And it's all socially constructed where the border is, the what it looks like, who's eligible, who's not, what makes someone deserving, what makes someone not. I mean, that's those are all decisions that humans have made. That's not like an essential truth. There's so much to learn too, you know, about, you know, we a lot of people tend to think that, that you're born that for example, legality or issues related to authorization or documentation are, you know, you're either born that way or you're not. And it's just this essential, you know, there's this binary and that's not necessarily true. I mean, you've mentioned this in previous podcasts about, you know, temporary protected status or who's eligible for DACA and who's not. They're the same people. The thing is the law. It's all about how it's worded. And uh, and obviously they do it with, st with strategy because they want to seem like they're going to help people when in reality, those uh, the small number, like we've been talking about, the small percentage of the people that they are helping, they're going to highlight it like it's their great gift to us and use that in order to not give us anything other than what we're getting right now, which is parole. And even that's maybe. Yeah. And, and, you, and you, you know, you two have talked about in podcast, right, that it's all. You know, this is people's lives, and yet these topics are used and people are used to further, like, individual political agendas. And that can be, you know, really complicated. But, you know, that said, I think it's easy to critique po policymakers 
it is so much harder to develop a policy that won't have unintended consequences, you yeah, know, definitely. or won't have. And I'm not saying that to say that, you know, policymakers aren't responsible for the policies they create. But I think that there are, right, these are very complicated topics and all of them have, you know, intended and unintended consequences and and maybe even things that, that aren't foreseen. So it's really, it, I think it is really complicated. I was just reading yesterday about how, you know, I'm always learning something new. Like I was reading yesterday about young people whose parents are here on, you know, visas, uh, employee, you might've been, you know, you probably know all about this, right? Is that, you know, there's, there's young people who were raised mostly in the United States. Their parents had uh, worker visas. And then as soon as they turn 21, they're supposed to leave. And there, and, and many have been here forever, just like you, you know, you have said this in previous podcasts, right? You know, um, people have been here for many years, most of their lives, don't know that other country and policies have consequences. Well, speaking of other consequences that it that it can have not only on uh, the people but on the region itself, I'd like to talk a little bit about the economy at the border. With this militarization that is happening, who wins and who loses in terms of economic benefits? Well, I don't know if I have the perfect answer answer for that because I think that that I I, it, I think it's hard to to determine what is the human cost, what's the economic cost, what are the economic benefits, right, et cetera. What I would say is that we have kind of competing forces, right? So capitalism requires um, that there be, right, this movement of products and goods and U.S. Uh, the U.S. economy and Arizona economy, for example, relies a lot on jobs and on the manufacture of things in maquila plants in Mexico, right, to, to process and put together and assemble products for sale in the United States and around the world. And so there's those kinds of things that are happening, right, where cars and truck, trucks and train train cars with products on them um, need to be going back and forth. We, you know, every hour that there's a delay, for example, in crossing a border costs, you know, millions of dollars in terms of products that are sitting around in refrigerated trucks, environmental costs, stuff like that. So there is kind of those economic kind of costs and benefits. Um, and then there's the benefits for the local communities, right? The border doesn't stop, you know, air and water quality and all of those things that are kind of byproducts of what's happening at the border. We know that the economies are joined, that they're integrated, that I, I saw something from the University of Arizona. I think they have a, an institute that, that calculated something about like 60,000 jobs in Arizona are directly tied to trade with Mexico. Wow. And so there's those kinds of economic costs. You know, tourism is really important. And so facilitating tourists and right. And now we have, a, you know, COVID and the spread of COVID and the impact that that's happening. So I don't know if I'm sorry, I know that's not a great answer, but I think it's really hard to calculate, but it involves all these different factors. Yeah, I think uh, the border is so much more, I think, than migration. It involves ecology, the environment. I think it affects a lot of things in the borderlands, as well as the cultures on both sides. Uh, I think when I think about economics, I think a lot about the, the budgets for the government agencies. And I know you sent us over some figures, uh, so I kind of wanted to go over them. In 2003, I saw that the CBP budget, which is Customs and Borders Protection, the budget was 5.9 billion. But in 2021, it's now sitting at 17.7. To me, that's a little crazy. That's over a 300% increase. 
How have you noticed those trends develop over the years and what kind of effects have they had? When I think of a 300% increase in budget, that's a lot of personnel, that's a lot of equipment, that's a lot of surveillance. Uh, so I'm just a little surprised that they have so much money. You know, I was thinking about that in preparation for talking with both of you. And so this is just my own opinion, but I do feel like in my own evaluation, you know, I think there's areas in which people should make do with the money they have and we don't increase the budgets. I'm thinking about education, you know, K to 12 education, they need to make do with the budget or budget decreases. But when it comes to, you know, immigration enforcement and border protection and the police, there's often a, a, a view that, that, that there needs to be more funding allocated to those things. I mean, what I can say is even before COVID, Customs and Border Protection was having a hard time. They're required. They're supposed to have a certain number of jobs. They're supposed to have something like 22,000. Last time I checked, to be fully staffed, they're supposed to have 22 or 23,000 Border Patrol agents. They were having a hard time getting that many people in the jobs. So immigration policies over multiple decades have called for more resources and more border patrol agents because there is this idea that uh, not understanding these processes across the border or why people want to are pushed out of a country and pulled to this country that hasn't really been understood and so i think there's been this idea of like well what the the problem is that there's not enough people there's not enough boots on the ground there's not enough equipment and technology and I think a lot of people don't understand what's actually at the border in terms of the amount of resources, you know, the allocations of funding, how many border patrol agents there are, what they're doing. And so there has been that huge increase. So they can't fill a lot of the job, at least the last time I checked before COVID, you know, they weren't able to fill all the jobs that they that they had because these are very sensitive jobs. You know, a lot of the jobs are jobs that could be open to, you know, bribery or fraud you know these are very sensitive kind of jobs and there's lots of money that could be made and as, and i'm not saying that right necessarily the border patrol are all corrupt or anything like that i'm not making that blanket statement i'm just saying that some of these jobs can be really sensitive and so they have to do a lot of vetting to get people into these jobs and that can be hard to do but you know if you don't pay attention to why do people migrate and you only pay attention to increasing border patrol agents then the metrics that are used to determine whether it's effective or not is 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 going to change. And so, for example, I mean, I've shown even in class, Carlos, you probably you might remember this, right? That if we pay attention to apprehensions at the border or encounters, that's what people are calling it now, right? Is encounters at the border. That makes it sound like you're having a chat over coffee or something. Right. <laughs> and that's how it did that. And, and, and that's on purpose because it's all about optics as well, how it's going to look to the public. Right. That's right, because I mean, a lot of this is about metrics and whether the border, border is secure and securing the border and what does a secure border look like and what are those metrics. Migration is cyclical during the year and over time. And so when there are not a lot of apprehensions, the statistics in terms of how many Border Patrol agents are there and how many apprehensions are there over time, what you see is many more right many more border patrol agents there have been times in which there have been much fewer apprehensions and so that rate per border patrol agent mm -hmm. um doesn't look like an effective use of resources but what i would also say right is that you know there's a lot more going on than just border patrol agents there's you know that like we talked about all the equipment that's required and all the surveillance and all of that and so I think, though, that Danny's right, right, that a lot, some of it is about optics and what's the yeah. metric that we're going to use. I know all around, looking at all these metrics and, and the benchmarks, it seems a little to me that 
the government is kind of throwing money at the problem, at, at something that they don't really truly understand. We know that migration is cyclical. Uh, there's a lot of patterns. Before all this enforcement, people used to go back and forward. The undocumented population wasn't as big because people were able to, to leave and, and go whenever they pleased. In, in your eyes, how would you better the system? And I know like that's a super big, big yeah. concept and a super big problem. Our immigration, I think, our immigration system, I believe, is pretty, pretty broken. As we were talking about with, with the parent or with the kids of the parents who migrated on work visas, who had visas yeah. themselves, there's a lot of problems and there's a lot of areas where the immigration system hasn't really been able to keep up. What would you say is the most important part that you would improve? Uh, yeah, it's a huge question that I can't oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, possibly begin to answer. And I will tell you that, you know, you can read reports on like the Migration Policy Institute, really long, really dense reports where they offer a lot of kind of bullet points of things that can be done. I mean, I think that, that, that one of the first things is to understand like what we talked about earlier, right, which is, you know, migration is going to occur and migration can be a sign of things that are good and it can be a sign of things that are bad. I think that something that would be really useful is for the U.S. public and U.S. policymakers to understand how and why we have gotten to where we are. What are the policies that have shaped why we have about 11 million undocumented immigrants, right? Why do we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that are eligible for TPS or lost TPS status? Why do we have the refugees that we do and from where? And so I think a lot of people don't understand kind of that history and the role of the United States and U.S. intervention in other countries mm -hmm. in shaping migration. And there's a lot of incredible amounts of misinformation about undocumented, about undocumented immigration and then just migration in general. And I think that that's a place, I know that that's not a great place, but that is a place to start where there is a lot of misinformation. A lot of people don't know the size of the budget or how many Border Patrol agents are there or how much fencing there is, you know? And, and there's just so much rhetoric and there's so much hype. Like, you know, you can read reports. If you pay attention to what, for example, under the Trump administration, what Trump would say about what he was going to do in terms of building a wall, it suggested that there wasn't any fencing and that there weren't any walls. And, and then what, did, what was actually accomplished was the majority of what was accomplished in terms of the wall was reinforcing existing walls. And, and then the other thing about it is, you know, are walls the best strategy? They cost billions of dollars. They don't address the reasons for why people migrate. As you said, Carlos, a couple of minutes ago, but these are ecologically sensitive areas. These are, you know, indigenous communities live there. These are crossing, you know, this is, uh, you know, the gray wolf. We hear about the gray wolf, right, in Arizona. Yeah. I mean, these are, these are places with, these are ecologically sensitive. And the border also is just, you know, it's very long. It's very diverse. There's not a one size fits all. Right. And then what also happens is when there are a lot of border patrol agents and when there is a lot of attention on deportations and detentions and all of that stuff, then what happens is people overstay their visas, which make them even harder for people for, for border patrol to actually catch. Right. And so, you know, I think kind of understanding where we are would be a good place to start. I think the other thing is with respect to the, what, what I know is really, you know, near and dear to your heart in terms of the, we are here campaign and you know, better than anybody, right. Cause you've been, you do all the talking about it day in and day out, but you know, we have we have to find way if we're going to put investment into educating everyone in the United States and offering public education the way that we do, and we realize that this is a benefit, then we should be trying to 
integrate and incorporate, you know, help young people succeed, people who are too young for DACA, you know, people who are too old for DACA, their parents, right? I mean, these are people that are here and it makes the most, if you want to care about things from an economic perspective, then it makes the most economic sense to let people pay more taxes. So there's, I think there's a lot of, I know that's, that's kind of a long meandering answer, but you know, addressing misinformation, understanding U.S. immigration history, what has and hasn't worked, what are the human costs? The demography of the United States is that the United States is getting older. Yeah. It is a global problem that as fertility decreases and people get older, immigrants is what you end up needing. And so, you know, addressing that would be really important. So I know that that's not like, there's not one specific thing, but I think all of those are things that would begin to help. Right. I don't know what you think, Danny, but I, I completely agree. I think it's a hard question because there's so much wrong <laughs> that I think over the last 20, 30 years, most administrations of the government haven't really known how to uh, address anything or even how to fix it. I think one of the really important things that, that you were talking about, Professora, is the, the kind of the rhetoric around the border. To me, it kind of feels like war rhetoric. Yes. where people are saying invasion, we need more technology, we need more enforcement. So I think if you're not in the border region, you don't know what's going on, you didn't migrate, or you're not involved academically in that field, you'd think there's a war at the border. You'd think that all this stuff was happening, but it's a little blown up. Like it's it's not a, a war zone. People aren't, you know, fighting. People aren't like, there, there's no invasion. I think there's just been so many, so much heated, rhetoric to where there's a lot of misinformation in, in other parts of the country and where if you don't see it with your own eyes, you rely on the news or you rely on what other people say. So how would you fight like the war or invasion rhetoric, knowing like what you know? Well, I mean, you know, that is not new, right? This idea of, you know, war language is actually part of immigration um, enforcement and activity. They call it right. They started with calling things like operation gatekeeper, operation hold the line. I mean, they had very militaristic terms. And so I think, you know, uh, and this idea of people being invaded and floods of immigrants, I mean, you know, we know that that's been, you know, there's political cartoons from 1910 that are talking about this in 1920, which is up until recently has been the high point of just general immigration. And so this isn't, you know, new language. This is something that's been going on for a really long time. I think that that fact is important, recognizing that this is something that has been said about every wave of immigrants, you know, and have had things to say about them and concerns about whether they're going to be able to, quote unquote, assimilate and what are their characteristics and are they, you know, and what do they take away rather than what do they add and what do they contribute? And so, I mean, those are those are very old kind of language. Uh, a lot of times this comes from a place of fear and not wanting change, but change is inevitable. You know, yeah. change, that's that's what happens, right? That change is like something that just happens. And so I think a lot of times it's coming from a place of fear, of losing, losing status. And I think that, you know, it's related to the fact that there haven't been as many economic gains, for example, among, you know, U.S. born lower and middle class, right? There have, there's been a real decline in terms of people's well economic well-being, the stagnation in wages, you know, you know, for young people, it's really hard to get a good job with benefits. A lot of people are in the gig economy. And so I think a lot of people are afraid of losing their position. They're convinced that other people have it easier than they do. And everybody else is somehow taking advantage of the system and you're not and not really understanding that we're that we're all in this together. Like the well-being of humans involves everybody. Right. Um, yeah. You know, 
to go back to people, you know, this aging population, you know, who's going to keep social security afloat? Who's going to keep all of these things going, right? As people live longer, we're going to need more people that are doing these kinds of jobs. It's hard because it comes from, I think for a lot of people from a place of fear, a misunderstanding of the history. And then, and then I think, you know, I think just in general, people want a real quick answer. And this is really, you know, it's very complicated. No, I, I agree. I think it's impossible to get that quick answer because when we tackle a problem this big, everything that you unfold reveals a plethora of new problems and each of those keeps going in this chain reaction. And once people see that, they either don't want anything to do with it or they just want to tackle the top thing right away to see like maybe that will fix everything down below. Yeah, when Carla, when Carla said, you know, well, what would you do? I, I don't even know what to propose because <laughs> if you are humble about what has happened, you should be scared to propose a policy because all the policies and, and everything we've said, right, have unintended consequences, have good and bad. And, and I don't think that that means we shouldn't start somewhere, right? You got, you got to start somewhere. You've got to, you've got to claim the victories where you, where you can. It is really complicated. It's really challenging. And I think in this era of real extreme partisanship, people are not paying attention to the same news sources. And so as a result, you don't know what the quote unquote other side is actually hearing unless you're paying attention and you're listening to those same outlets. We don't, I don't even, you know what I mean? I don't, if you're not paying that much attention to what else is happening, you don't even know what's, we see that with, with COVID and misinformation, right? Like if you're not paying attention, you don't even know what people are saying. Right. And I believe that the biggest weapon that we have to fight misinformation is to educate ourselves. So is there uh, any any kind of uh, books or anything that you might recommend for the everyday person who wants to try to, like, just get their foot in the door and see what kind of information there is out there? Yes. And I'm going to look it up real quick. It's a uh, there is an emailed immigration course that's free from Pew. I'll put it in the chat for you. Maybe you can. I don't know if you have notes for the yeah, podcast. We'll, but we'll put it in the show notes as yeah. well. Yeah. But it's a, it's called a, it's an email course on immigration. There's so many possible sources. I definitely I like PewResearch.org. They have great sources about immigration. There's another one called MigrationPolicy.org. There you could sign up for to receive like an email with new information and updates on immigration on some of these uh, sources. If you go to YouTube, you can look up you know immigration films, you know, there's so much information out there. I think it like an emailed course is useful. There's so many different kind of documentaries that you can find. And it's just so complicated. There's a lot of, you know, there's just a lot out. And, and I guess that's part of the problem, right? It's like, it's hard for you to, it's hard for the regular person to evaluate what's good information. People are worried about how much misinformation they are, there is. And and whether they have access to good information or not. But I think there's a lot of think tanks offering really good information about migration. I'll email you all and, and put in the chat so you can add to the show notes some other good places that I like for uh, with information about migration. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much for that. And Professor, did, is there anything else you would like to add to the conversation uh, before we sign off? I think that was all the questions that I had in general, but do you think there's anything else that's important to mention when we're talking about the immigration system and the border? So much. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that, because we didn't even really go into like, what's been happening in recent years about people not being able to ask for a request for asylum, what's been happening on the, 
the, you know, the southern border and in Mexico in terms of settlements and the insecurity and the exploitation that people are right for while they're waiting. I mean, one of the things that we didn't, you know, there's so many things we could get into, which is there's just so many aspects of the immigration system that are really flawed. The wait times, right? Yeah. You know, they were doing some metering where they weren't, uh, not everyone could request asylum the way they want. The wait times to be able to have your visa be current so that you can adjust your status and begin the process. You know, there's just so much, there's so much going on. And I would definitely say to read good sources of information. I will also say to also understand that it's impossible. I mean, I'm someone who studies migration and teaches a class on migration, and I cannot keep up with all the things that are happening ever, all the time and all the often there's immigration policy council. There's so many different sources of information and so many different issues with respect to detention centers. I'm actually going with how many people are being detained you know, uh, unaccompanied children being sent back. There's so many different, so many different aspects of this. And I think understanding that, that it's really hard to understand the, the entirety of it, but having a humble attitude and realizing that everybody has a lot to learn, that none of this is as simple as it sounds, and that you should be concerned about anyone who makes it sound really simple, that they've got the answer, that it's one, you know, it's one thing that's going to solve this crisis. This is, you know, this is, this is national, this is binational, this is regional, this is global, but that this is something that's worthy of your time and attention. Uh, for some people, you know, people feel this every single day. What is the impact of immigration policy and immigration enforcement activity I have a, I'm working on a paper. If I might, I'm going to continue. Oh, <laughs> I hope you don't mind. But I'm working on this paper about psychosocial distress, which is an aspect of psychological well being. And we're using this data collected by the Pew Research Center during the pandemic. And we're focusing specifically on Latinx or, you know, Lat uh, Hispanic, Latino people. And one of the issues is that some people are living this every single day. Deportation fears are a huge factor and not just for yourself, but for, for people that you care about. It doesn't even have to happen. The worry about it has real damaging impacts on people's psycho psychology, uh, psychological well-being, on the well-being of children and people that are not even the targets of the intended targets of immigration enforcement and immigration policy. And so even if you're not someone for whom this affects you directly, realize that it affects a lot of other people directly. We all need to understand more about what's happening and, and reducing misinformation where we can. That, I'll, I'll stop with that. No, no worries. And I know as directly affected people, I think even we have a lot to learn about the immigration system. We feel the effects, but a lot of times we don't understand the processes or, or even the system that we have to face every day. So I really like that learning more. There's always more you can learn. And even yeah. me, like who have, I've studied migration for a long time now and I don't have all the answers. I can't tell anyone what will fix everything. So I think understanding and being humble is really important. I really like yeah, that. I agree. Well, thank you for the work that you're both doing. And I mean, I'm really excited to hear more of your, of your episodes. Uh, definitely, Professor. Thank you for taking the time out of your day for to come and have this conversation with us. And yes, we could get into a lot of other things. We'll definitely yeah, have like to have you with the part two, maybe even part three and <laughs> or four. Or somebody else. There's a lot of really wonderful, really, really, really smart people. You know them <laughs> that could that could get on and talk. But yeah, thank you so much for the work you do. And I apologize for my dog. <laughs> no, no worries. Thank you so much, Professor. All right, take care. Está muy bien. Take Igualmente, care. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye. Adios.
All right, everyone. Uh, that was our interview with uh, Professora Eileen Diaz McConnell. Professora, uh, if you're listening, I just want to say thank you so much for, for being on the show with us. Thank you so much to Frecuencia Alterna, to Fuerte, to Dani, my co host, to Graphics, Karina Dominguez, Dominique for the music, Karina and Dani again for production and editing. And I just want to shout out everyone that's listening, everyone that's shared, everyone that's liked. Please, you know, keep sharing us. Always give us feedback. We're open to talking about any topic. Uh, and we're super grateful that. People are tuning in every week and listening to us basically like talk and give out our stories. And uh, before we leave, you guys just want to let you guys know that Fuerte will be having their first annual fundraiser. It's going to be Noche de Arte hosted at Cohokia at uh, 707 North 3rd Street, Suite 130 around downtown Phoenix. If you guys uh, go to the Fuerte.org website, you guys can RSVP, show your support, come out here and see all the things that we've done. There's going to be videos, part of our podcast that we've done, photography of the different events and the campaigns that we've run, pretty much showcasing all of the great work that the people of Fuerte have been doing for this past year and will be continuing to do for years to come. So make sure you guys mark your calendars. That is December 10th. Noche de Arte at Cahokia downtown. And this time next week, we're going to be on a plane to D.C., but that will not stop yes, us from putting out a new episode. So you guys make sure you are subscribed and uh, you will receive first notifications for when the new episode drops. Yeah, of course. Uh, thank you so much for listening, everyone. Nos vemos. Gracias. Thank you so much. Bye.